0: I will invite you all to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Daniel for the second time. We have just begun a preaching series in the book of Daniel, and we come here again today to Daniel chapter 2. I um, have on your study notes there a whole number of things by way of review, and I'll comment on just a couple of those things. Of course, last week, we just started printing bulletins again, and so sermon notes are available, still available on our website, but they're they're perhaps in front of you as well. Uh, The book of Daniel, of course, uh, would seem to be uh, probably the most studied of the major and minor prophets. People come here a lot for its colorful stories and its look into the future. We mentioned a number of things last week, such as the book of Daniel breaks down into two parts. Uh, chapters 1 to 6, largely narrative, telling Daniel's story along with his friends. And then chapters 7 to 12 that are what we would call apocalyptic in style, literature style, um, and, and look more to pro- future prophecy and things like that. And so uh, some, there's some overlap. Some of the prophecies of the second half really uh, are presented in the first half, but they, they just kind of overlap in that way. Now, we mentioned last week, Daniel and his three friends are a part of a larger group who were taken captive from the little area of Judah, the southern part of Israel that had not previously been hauled away by the Assyrians. And now the Babylonians have come along, a process that took some years, 605 and following down to about 586 when it was all done. But but these guys, you you, you can't you can't overestimate this moment because they went from uh, Judah into Babylon. Babylon was, from all that we know, the, the biggest city of the time. It was the most powerful empire on the face of the planet to the degree that we understand the planet. But it's, it's kind of like going from Nebraska, little, you know, young man in Nebraska, all the way to New York City without seeing it first on TV. My goodness sakes, the the buildings and the walls and the opulence and the the, the universities and the the pagan temples. There were hundreds, probably thousands, throughout this big, big city. I can just picture Daniel and his friends, young teenagers, no doubt at the time, eyes wide open thinking, good night, we are not in Judah anymore. Um, Very, very different experience. Of course, all the things that they had seen and being hauled away, and, and here they are. So Daniel chapter 2 then follows right on the heels of, of what we were introduced to last week. We asked the question last Sunday, is God present in Babylon? And of course, we talked about our own day uh, as we live in Babylon as well. An increasingly pagan, increasingly uh, a society where God is removed. And that's where Daniel and his friends lived. Is God present? Is God present in Babylon then? Is he present in our Babylon? And we said Yes. Last week, he is. He is present, was present then, is present today in our Babylon. And so we come to chapter two. Now, just a couple things. You, if you have a Bible in front of you, you see, man, a lot. This 49 verses. This is a long chapter. We're going to cover the whole thing. Yeah, we are. Oh, my goodness sakes. We're going to be here all morning. Well, uh, we're going to do some reading. But this is a preaching unit. Uh, preachers like to think in terms of uh, units and it begins with a time signature, chapter two, verse one. And it kind of ends with, uh, it, well, not quite like they lived happily ever after, but it kind of closes the loop it, toward the end in verse 49. So it's a good unit. It sets up like a good short story where there's a, a crisis and then there's a solution, a resolution, and then and then there's a resolution part as well. So if you know how short stories work, this chapter sets up just like that. Well, I want to pray for us that God would help us in his word, and then we're going to get busy reading, and let's talk our way through it, all right? But pray with me, please, as we come to God's authoritative word. Our Father, it is with great joy that we open the scriptures together. Uh, Where else could we go to learn truth? And so we we come into your presence and ask for your help in, in understanding and loving and then obeying your word letting it change the way that we think about our lives and what is true and and what is right. So, Father, we place ourselves under your authority and the authority of your word these days. And help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's get right to it then. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. I'm gonna read this in thirds. Sermon notes kind of lay out how we're doing it and where we're going. So, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're gonna meet him here again. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. He's the big guy in Babylon. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, now For those of you who like to think of such things, at this point in the original language, it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. There's a lengthy section that's in Aramaic from this point to the end of chapter 7. It's kind of interesting. Some people love those details, others not so much. Well, here we go then, fortunately, in English. uh, They said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. "'Tell your servants the dreams, and we'll show the interpretation.' "'The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, "'The word from me is firm. "'If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, "'you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. "'But if you show the dream and its interpretation, "'you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. "'Therefore, show me the dream.' and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, well, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known uh, the dream, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change or until I forget about it. Therefore, tell me the dream And I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, this is a very important phrase here, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. Indeed, that's absolutely true. No great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks, you ready for this? It's difficult. Yeah, do you think so? Impossible would actually be true. It's impossible. It's difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods, and they don't live here. Well, their dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel answered with prudence and discretion, that's a, a real important marker. It shows a contrast between Daniel and the king, certainly. And Daniel answered with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who'd gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Uh, all right. So there's, there's our problem. That's a really big problem. And I think you picked up as we read, uh, apparently the king woke up, knew he was in the middle of an amazing story, a dream. And as soon as he woke up, you've probably done this. You just go, man, that was a great dream. And you want to go right back into it. You ever had that? Now, can you imagine if you had that kind of a dream, but you couldn't remember it? You just knew it was great. Well, here he is. He's going, man, what was that dream? Well, frightening dream, very colorful dream. Man, what was that all about? What was that anyway? So he tells these guys, not only tell me what it means, but tell me what it was. That's the problem, of course. Who can do that? Had a great dream last night. You want to tell me what, what it was? No, I don't have any idea what it was. And that's the dilemma. Well, now, several things here. Nebuchadnezzar is relatively new on the job. History tells us that. The text tells us it was the second year of his reign. Uh, From all we understand of history, he's probably around 30 or so, Um, depending on how old you are. 30 is either an advanced age or pretty wet behind the ears. That tells a lot about you, of course, as as you would think about that. Nebuchadnezzar is, think about it, about 30. And at this moment, he's the most powerful man in the known world. I mean, this is heady stuff. And so he can make decrees. He can just say, give me this or tell me that. And if not, I'll just, if you can't do it, I'll just tear you limb from limb and have your house turned into ruin. Right. And he did that kind of stuff. You you study ancient history, the Assyrians up North and the Babylonians and a lot of others were brutal people. Um, so you didn't just get like a bad job review here, okay? Put a note in your file. No, they just tear you limb from limb and throw your house, and you know, and, and probably not just you limb from limb, you know, your whole family. So it's a big deal if you go off to work and you have a good day. Well, this is a this is a big moment. Now I put a couple things here for you to think about um, on your study notes. I hope you have those. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, new in the job, and Daniel too. He's still a young teenager. So he's still trying to figure it out, going to university at the time, it would seem. And it's, it's a truly impossible situation. It is one for which there is, there is no human answer. Now, from a pastoral angle, if you just come to a screeching halt there with me, that would be a good thing. Um, impossible situations. You ever had one of those? Usually they involve other people. Have you noticed that? Or us, maybe our heart something impossible and here's one and and you look at this and you say okay humanly speaking there's no way to fix this there's no way to I mean what are you going to do humanly speaking there's no answer um there are no resources for this and unless god intervenes um party's over it, it, i find it interesting as we read the text daniel and his buddies weren't even in this conversation but they're in for the penalty I can just imagine Daniel brushing his teeth in the morning and there's a knock on the door and it's this guy saying, hey, by the way, we're about to kill all of you. That's kind of the way it played out. Daniel going, oh, really? What What, what did we do? Well, your buddies down the road weren't that smart. They couldn't tell the king his dream, so you guys are all going to die. That's the way it played out. So my goodness, an impossible, an impossible situation. Now, there's a contrast, as I mentioned, between Daniel who replies with prudence and discretion and the the, the behavior of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, uh, there are a whole number of things. He he makes a request. He makes some demands. He ups the ante. He raises his voice. He makes loud, angry threats, uh, threatens bodily harm. How would you like to work for a guy like that? You want that for a boss? Um, we're intended to notice this, uh, the, the the way he's trying to get things to change. And I, Just a little bit of commentary here, if I may. I uh, suggest here, note to self, how well do these methods work? Hmm? Yeah, not very good, do they? Because you take this, just, just get this, please. Take it to the bank if you wish. Uh, very few people change their minds if you yell at them. Did you know that? You can change their behavior for the moment, but you won't change their heart. Um. I, I get concerned about that with a lot of things in our, in our lives, in our culture. Most people don't change, really, truly change if your finger is in their face. It's, it's, when you, it's when you talk. I talk and you listen, you talk and I listen, and we dialogue. Typically, change happens there. True heart change. And I always get concerned when people, people think that loud, angry threats and, and physical, threatening bodily harm, that that's gonna really fix things. Sometimes people do this in homes, some of us have been raised in homes or maybe hopefully not live in one now. I hope those aren't things that you're familiar with on a personal level. It ought not be that way. But this is a very bad way to change anybody is to yell at them. You, can, you can, might be able to keep them from this, but you won't change their heart. And heart change is really what we're after, isn't it? We want, the, them, want that thing to change. So yelling is just angry threats and bodily harm. It's not how you get anything done. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, that's what he had in his arsenal and it wasn't so good. I want to go to verse sixteen here. Of course, we we springboard from verse ten. There's not a man on earth who can do this. Absolutely, it's difficult. Daniel then, when he hears about this, he 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 looks like he makes an appointment with the king. What do you think he's thinking in verse sixteen? What do you think is running through his mind? Oh, we don't know that he's had any word from God yet. Daniel goes in and requests the king to appoint a point in time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Is he is he banking on God helping him? Is he thinking, hey uh, hey hey boys, tomorrow we're gonna die, so we're gonna get a really big pizza and have a have a movie night, and tomorrow we're gonna die. I don't know what he's thinking. We're not told that part of the story. Makes an appointment and says, okay, I'm coming. I'll tell the king all that you want to know. Did did he? How did he know that God was going to work with him? I want to I want to use a phrase here and then press on our theological buttons just a moment. And if you say this phrase around me, I won't get after you. I might think something, though, and I'm now going to tell you what I'll be thinking, okay? But I hear, there's colloquial Christianity, and it's all over. I hear it, I hear it, it's in books, it's popular speakers say this. Um, they say something like this, 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 and then God showed up. Any idea why that just runs theological shivers down my spine? Yeah, what do you mean God showed up? Well, like he wasn't there a minute ago? He, he, he didn't... Sh- it wasn't that God showed up. It's that at that moment he acted. And I, maybe that's what we mean, but it's really theologically imprecise and it suggests things about God that are not true at all. That is, that God's presence is indicated... That's what it indicates, suggests. God's presence is indicated when he does what I want him to do. God showed up. See, I, again, I know what we mean, but it's sloppy and it suggests bad things. God wasn't here yesterday. and My goodness sakes, out of the blue, God showed up. Who knew? Listen, if you're a child of God, there's never a moment you're out of his eyesight and away from his care. There's not a moment. So to say God showed up is is... My goodness sakes! I hope you don't think, Lord. Where, I mean, I'm waiting for you to show up. He's going. I'm right here. What are you looking around for? Now, I put a cross reference here for your consideration for your further study. I'm going to refer to it now. Hebrews eleven, thirty-two to forty. Let me just tell you about it. Okay? Here's what you'll find. Hebrews eleven is what we often call the faith chapter. It chronicles. In a powerful way, the stories of men and women that God has used uh, through ancient history, the Old Testament, my goodness, Abraham and Sarah, and all the way down to all kinds of men and women who were people of faith. But there's an interesting paragraph toward the end of that chapter, and this is it, uh, a kind of a summary of things, and it, it's jolting to the phrase, God showed up, okay? Here's what I mean. Uh, that paragraph starts at verse verse 32. It begins with a whole bunch of ways in which God has delivered his people. Or again, those are times that God showed up. And it references Daniel. Not by name, but it talks about uh, how God stopped the mouths of lions. So it's referring to things just like this. But in the middle, I think it's verse 34, maybe 36, uh, 34, um, perhaps. The language shifts, from God delivered, God delivered, God delivered, or if you will, God showed up, God showed up. And then it says, God didn't deliver. Some of them were stoned, sawn asunder, died awful deaths, went about in the wilderness. Now I'm asking you this, your theological wisdom, come on, did God not show up for them? Is that what it was? First paragraph, God showed up, second paragraph, he didn't? Come on now, what do you really believe about God? He was there for both, wasn't he? So the fact that they were—some of them died by stoning or were sawn under—it wasn't that God didn't show up. He did show up. He was there in their suffering. I press on this because in your difficulties and the struggles that you face, don't you think that if God doesn't fix it the way you think, that He didn't show up? Sometimes God parts the waters. Sometimes He gives us strength strength to walk through the waters. Sometimes he lets us struggle and maybe physically here not make it through the waters. But we are in his hands the whole time, okay? So, so, so let, let us not limit the presence of God or awareness of the presence of God to when God does what we think he should. He is just as present in your life when he doesn't do what you think he should. Because he is God and he is not answerable to you. Okay? So I look here, you know, Daniel makes an appointment with the king. I wonder what he was thinking. Well, let's move on. Uh, Verses 17 to 30. And this is where we have verse 28, of course, which I will highlight and beat the drum about and tell you this is the high point, I think, in the whole chapter, verse 28. I think it's the reason you showed up this morning is so that you'd read Daniel 2, verse 28, and take it to heart. So we're going to hear it now. This is that moment in a short story where where there's resolution. There's a moment of great praise, but I'm telling you, verse 28 is where I I really want your, your, your eye and your heart and your theological concern to be riveted. So we read then, starting verse 17, Daniel went to his house, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He uses their Hebrew names here, of course, all of which speak about the God who is. Great that he used their name. It speaks to these guys, his companions. And he told them here, it says, to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this. What a wonderful thing to pray. Oh God, have mercy on us here. That's what they were gonna pray. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Uh, Okay, pause for a moment again, sorry. If Daniel and his companions had been destroyed, Would it have been just or unjust? Well, you you know, from a human angle, a tremendous injustice. They didn't do it. They didn't do anything wrong. Do God's people ever face injustice? Well, yes. Yes. We live in an unjust, broken world. Since when do we think we have uh, some kind of divine right always to have things work out perfectly. Sometimes people do steal your lawnmower and you never get it back. What do you have? A, did you get a little card that said, I'm a Christian. I should always be treated with justice and equity. No, I don't have that card. If you've got that, let me know. Um, that's, that's not an assumption living in a broken world. So if you face injustice, I don't mean you have to like it. That's not my point. And I don't mean, you don't push back and look for your lawnmower. I'm just meaning don't be so surprised. It's a pretty broken world. All right. I go on. Verse, verse 19. The mystery then. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And here's his prayer. Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of, the, of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He Look at this phrase. He removes kings and sets up kings. Do you believe that? He removes kings, he sets up kings. Nobody sits on a throne apart from the the, the permission of God. He removes kings, sets up kings, give wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went, so Daniel went, Daniel went, says it says it twice. He went and said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. bring them in before the king. And I will show the king the interpretation. Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found. Yeah, no problem, Ariok. Go ahead. Take all the credit. You're the man. I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king its interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Babylonian name, are you able to make known to me the dream I've seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O oh king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. We'll stop there for a moment before we, we read the dream. So not only the impossible situation, but the game changer. The game changer is verse 28. That, that phrase, let me tell you something, that is a watershed. It was then and it is today. This this, this is the, uh, the, the massive divide um, we talk about, you know, your whatever junior high uh, geography class you learned about the continental divide in the United States, right? Basically, you're running down the ridge of the Rocky Mountains, somewhere around 14,000 feet at its height. Now, the continental divide, of course, part of the hydrological cycle, where water that flows on the east side of the continental divide flows toward the Atlantic, Gulf of Mexico, ultimately the Atlantic drainage system, and water on the west Uh, Heads to the Pacific. And I I have not been to the top of the continental divide. Maybe some of you have. But I've always envisioned going there with a five-gallon bucket of water and pouring it out and watching it go. Thinking, wow, look at that. There it goes. I don't know if there's actually a peak at which I could do that. But verse 28, in terms of the way we view the world, okay, worldview, it's that. It's the continental divide. Here's what I mean by that. If there's a God in heaven who truly is, who who is involved in human history and who is the judge of all. If there's a God in heaven who acts, who has spoken, then life goes this way. And if there is not a God in heaven there is, if there is no creator, if there is no ultimate judge to whom you are accountable, if he has not spoken, and the Bible is just a collection of, of nice little sayings from old, if that's all it is, then life goes another way. And I'm saying that is the continental divide for you. Which way will you live? It's the continental divide in our culture today, isn't it? As As culture pulls God out of it, this is the great divide. This is why it's all on fire today, by the way. All kinds of things being redefined, and no, we can do that. We're pitching, pitching things that were part of God's plan, God's revelation, and it's about this. Is there a God in heaven or not? See, that's, that is what's going on. People talk about, well, that's all private. No, actually, hold on. No, all, all of culture hinges on that. If there's a God in heaven who is and before whom we live, then it works one way. And if there is no God in heaven, it works a different way. So Daniel says, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. A God who is, who truly is there. The Bible reveals that God is the one who spoke the worlds into existence and holds it in his hand. A God who calls the stars by name and knows your name A God who gives your life meaning and purpose. A God before whom you will one day stand. A God who has an eternal home that most people alive, sure hope is real because they hope to go there. We all like happy places. Uh, A God who acts in human history, who is present in my life. A God who has spoken. Daniel says he affirms all of that. Now, uh, it would be impossible for me to overstate the significance of this. This fall, we've mentioned we're going to complete Daniel and we're going to head into a, a series on culture. That That is one of the big deals. As culture seeks to pull God out, there's a vacuum. And what rushes in? Because the consequences of this, if there's a God in heaven, it works this way. If there is not a God in heaven, it works this way. Uh, if there's a God in heaven, think about this, then the impossible is, is not impossible. God can change a human heart, including yours. If there's a God in heaven, then the path to human flourishing is his path. So it's not just arbitrary. It's not just, yeah, well, that's what you think. If there's a God in heaven, and he has spoken in his word, and he describes how life is best lived for his glory and our good, then then, then there's an authority about this. We don't like authority. We want to, you know, what is it? Um, question authority these days? Uh, bumper sticker? Well, let me tell you something. God, God has spoken. God has spoken. Uh, if, if there's a God in heaven, if Daniel's right, the word of God is sure. It's not negotiable. So sometimes people cr- press on people of faith and say, come on, you got to get with the times. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history here. I, I, that's a very interesting phrase. You don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? Wouldn't that be awful? Be on the wrong side of history? Of course, as it has been wisely pointed out by somebody far smarter than me, Christianity began on the wrong side of history. There was Rome and there was Christianity. And hundreds of years later, Rome is in the dust and Jesus and his church kind of seem to be doing fine, thank you. So being on the wrong side of history, I don't know. I kind of like the odds of hanging out with Jesus uh, as the story will continue. If Daniel's right and there's a God in heaven, God has rules for life that don't change. So I tell you, verse 28 is a continental divide. And I hope that for you, I hope that you are on the side that says, no, there is a God in heaven, and that you understand the implications of that. Well, uh, let's let's move on then to the dream. Verses 31 to 45, we'll read it, just a few comments, and we'll head toward a, a conclusion. The story, of course... Uh, the the impossible situation, Uh, God intervenes and gives Daniel the dream, and then here, here we go. So verse 31, Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. So here's your dream. Here's what you wish you could remember. This is it. There's an image. You saw an image, a great image, an image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, Its middle and thighs of bronze, notice the declining value of each. Its legs of iron, its feet partly of of iron and partly of clay. And as you look, the stone was cut out, not by human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so there was not a trace of them could be found. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There was the dream. That's what he saw. And I can imagine as Daniel told this that King Nebuchadnezzar was going, yes, how did you know? That was it. I saw this cool statue. I have no idea what, it was, what, it, what it's about, but it was scaring me to death. It's frightening. Then Daniel says, 36, this is the dream. Now we'll tell you its interpretation. Part B, so to speak. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, into whose hand he's given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you, so remember the or to you, remember the descending value. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and a, a third kingdom of bronze which will rule over the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these, and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they'll mix with one another in marriage. Interesting. And they'll, but they will not hold together, as iron does not mix with clay. Basic chemistry class here. And in those days, the king, the, the, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven That's breathtaking stuff. This is worldview things. Now, you, again, there's, we're gonna to be touching on some of the specific details in greater measure as we get to Daniel 7 and beyond. But for today, I want you to notice the, the this statue representing human kingdoms. It's descending, not ascending. That is, sometimes people think about the human race getting better and better, right? education. Uh, we can fix this place, Um, improving government. I'm not against improving the place. I'm not against better laws, not against any of that. I'm simply saying human kingdoms rise and fall and ultimately will will fall. One kingdom will rule forever. God's kingdom. These kingdoms are following the path of, of the law of entropy. That is, they're winding down. They're getting less valuable and weaker as they go it would appear, I think we should be forgiven for having a view of the world that says, you know, try as you might, you're not gonna fix the place. Now, some people have taken this, some Christians have taken this into to directions that I don't think mesh with scripture, where they despair of doing any good in the world, that's not it, or they despair of doing anything good for the environment, I'm not speaking of environmental, you know, tree hugging, I'm not getting into that today, I'm just saying, I've known some Christians who say, it doesn't really matter, it's all going to burn, and then throw something out the window. Okay, that's not a good Christian position either. Okay, God put us here as stewards of this world, that's in Genesis 1, cultural mandate, and we're to honor his creation. So um, this idea that human cultures descend rather than ascend does not give us the right to, to disparage what God has made. But yet, the the, the the key element here is this kingdom, gold and silver and bronze and so on, it is descending in value. And one day, God's kingdom will interrupt all those human kingdoms. And they will fall in the dust and sands of time, and God's kingdom will rule forever. And you can take that to the bank. Amen. Now, I, I am fascinated here. Um, i have given you a couple things to think about. I'm fascinated by, by what Nebuchadnezzar thought of this. He's surely going to be flattered by verses 37 and 38. Um, Daniel speaks so kindly. And then he says, by the way, you're the head of gold and you're going to die. And your kingdom will be crushed and you will fade into the sands of time. And every building with your name plaque on it is going to burn. Okay. Yeah, I know you think you're something, young 30-year-old Nebuchadnezzar, most powerful man on the face of the planet. Yeah, you're really something, aren't you? Yep, hats off to you, but you're not gonna last. You're gonna go where all the other human rulers go, to death. And one day this whole kingdom is gone and God's kingdom will rule. It's, It's pretty humbling stuff. God holds human history in his hand Now, for those who study history, and we're going to, again, step more into this in the chapters that are later to come, because this is a a story of history that's repeated in Daniel. Uh, People who study history, it would seem certainly that Babylon, of course, the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, clearly followed by the Medes and the Persians, that happens in uh, Daniel 5, we'll read that, because it's during Daniel's time that the Babylon. Babylonian Empire falls. The Medes and the Persians follow. Then, of course, Greece, Alexander the Great, who conquered the world in his 20s, basically. Imagine, died young. Alexander the Great, Greece, Rome, Rome's legions, firm as iron, cut your throat. And then on down to what would appear to be a revived Roman Empire. We'll, again, talk more about that as we get to chapter 7. But the key issue, verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Indeed, God's kingdom will rule. Now, Daniel chapter two, then of course resolves in verses 46 to 49. King Nebuchadnezzar gives lip service to Daniel. It's like he wins the lottery, gives him a bunch of stuff. And Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, again, Babylonian names here, Um, rise in the palace, in the government. So those last few verses, as you browse them, are kind of a postscript to all the action. But I want to leave these three things with you today, okay? Most markedly, verse 28. It is so important to me that verse 28 represent your worldview. There is a God in heaven. Those six words should just burn themselves across your soul. There is a God in heaven. And that changes everything. It's the continental divide of life. There's a God in heaven. If, if you don't believe that, life goes one way. But if there is, in fact, a God in heaven, life goes a different way. You start, you're able to see life differently. And I hope you think theistically. There's a God in heaven. He sees me. He knows me. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on a cross for my sin. There's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven for your impossible situations. There's a God in heaven who knows me. So I I hope verse 28 will just resonate through your heart. Uh, Second, we mentioned Jeremiah 29 last week. Jeremiah 29, of course, a a letter written by prophet Jeremiah back in Jerusalem and was sent to Babylon to the exiles. We read it last week. Daniel received it. Don't know when. But it says, it gave instruction that we're to seek the good of the city where God puts you as an exile. That was Daniel's call in Babylon. It's our call in Babylon too. Seek the good of the city where God has put us. Most clearly, that means the gospel. It does. That's the ultimate good for any place. Yes, uh, involvement as a citizen and so on. I, I applaud all of that. Most specifically, the gospel, living the gospel, communicating the gospel. So seek the good of the city, I think is what God said to Jeremiah to pass on to Daniel. And then finally, as we noted earlier, impossible situations. Do you have one today? Do you have one? Something that if, apart from the working of God, there's no answer. I I find myself there a lot. I have no idea what to do with that problem. But I know there's a God in heaven who knows. I know there's a God in heaven who can fix it. Let's talk to him. I'd like to pray for us. Got a couple announcements afterwards. Would you stand with me? But let's give thanks for our time in God's Word. Father, I thank you so much for our time together today. Thank you for Daniel too and this this amazing story. And I thank you so much that that you are real. You're really there. You're not just some figment of imagination or some 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 empty faith that believes in some deity to make us all feel better. The Bible tells us you're really there as our creator and God and Savior very present help in time of trouble. Thank you that that is indeed true. And I pray, our Father, that you'd help us to think of the implications of that and work it through. Indeed, there's a God in heaven. And Father, for each of us, each of these dear people today, I pray that you'd walk with us this next week, that our hearts would be tuned into your heart, that our feet would be pointed to the gospel, that you'd guard us and keep us. words of our mouth, thoughts of our heart would be pleasing to you. Thank you and we honor you today in Jesus' name. Amen.